When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This episode of the Bird Shop Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we talk quail hunting and more with Mike Sheffer. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 258. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Bird Shop Podcast. Thank you for joining us once again. We've got a great conversation coming up with our guest today, Mike Sheffer, talking plenty of quail hunting on today's episode. Before we get to that, I will quickly thank Patreon patrons of the Bird Shop Podcast, those of you out there making voluntary contributions in support of the show to keep these conversations coming your way. They get access to bonus content, some Patreon giveaways, and we send everybody some Bird Shop Podcast canned coolers and stickers. You can learn more about that and sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Remember those upcoming events. Next week, the Southeastern Wildlife Expo down in Charleston, South Carolina. I am headed there next week. Hope to see some of you there. Come see us at the Upland Gun Company booth in the Quail Village at Brittle Bank Park, along with some other great Upland-centric exhibitors. And then shortly after that, we got Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic coming up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Don't forget Friday night, the offline at Pheasant Fest Onyx Hunt Party. That's at 9 p.m. 
on Friday, March 1st at Ramcota's Grand Rushmore Hall. Live music, chance to win some great prizes, public access pull tabs, free beer from Kugels, and learn more about South Dakota's new public access to Habitat program. On top of that, this week is your last chance to win a set of tickets to the Trampled by Turtles Pheasants Forever Concert for Conservation. That concert is Thursday night, sort of the kickoff night of Pheasant Fest. Onyx Hunt giving away a set of tickets to one lucky subscriber and a friend. VIP passes, one night lodging, daily admission to the 2024 Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. That contest closes on February 15th, coming up next week. There's a link to enter in the show notes, Pheasant Fest giveaway. Still got some time before February 15th to click that link and sign yourself up. Hope to see some of you at Pheasant Fest as well. But for now, let's shift our focus to today's conversation with Mike Sheffer, lifelong upland bird hunter, listener of the show, friend of the show. Mike and I caught up a week or so ago and talked lots of quail hunting and upland bird hunting focused retirement, bird dogs, and more. Let's get right into it. Welcome into the conversation and on to the Bird Shot Podcast. Mike Sheffer. The red light is on, Mr. Sheffer, and the coffee is fresh. It's a, it's a beautiful day where you are. I know that based on what you're telling me. Believe it or not, we actually got a dusting of snow last night. It looks a bit more wintry than it has the last week or so. It it's almost like spring here. The birds are calling, and uh, and like I said, if it wasn't the lake wasn't frozen, I'd be going fishing today. So there is still ice on the water. Yeah, yeah, it got really cold here about two weeks ago, and and I think you know I wouldn't want to get out on it right now, but it'll probably be gone here in a couple of days. Yeah. Well, you mentioned it was going to be seventy degrees today, so I could imagine you know if there was enough ice. You know, that might be the, the kind of weather that would tempt me into ice fishing, 70 degrees and <laughs> sitting out on the bucket with a t-shirt. I might fall through down here. Well, why don't you put us on the map, Mike, let us know kind of where you are. Okay. I'm in Northeast Kansas. I'm just on the, the Northeast edge of the Flint Hills and, you know, it's primarily quail country here and there's, there's, there's prairie chickens here. Not, not quite as many as you go farther West, but there are a few prairie chickens here and. And a lot of native grass, and it's it's pretty good quail ground. Pretty good quail ground. Yeah, has that been a home base of yours for quite a while? You kind of Kansas. How long have you been in the Kansas area? I've I've lived in Kansas since two thousand and three, and I've lived in this particular area since two thousand and twelve. Okay, and and I I I'm retired now, and 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 I spend my my summers up in Montana, summers and fall in Montana, and then I spend you know, winters and, and spring here in Northeast Kansas. Kind of since I'm retired, I can go back and forth. Well, that doesn't sound half bad. No, I've, I've been enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> have you have you experimented with other other areas, other places? Like, because you're pretty mobile, it sounds like. Do you Have you ever spent a winter somewhere else, or is it pretty much Montana, Kansas? Yeah, last winter, I actually spent the winter in New Mexico, mm. just south of Clovis, near Portales oh. and got into some scale quail hunting down there. And, and I, I actually was going to spend the winter down there, but it had been so warm. I went down there and visited earlier in November 
and the rattlesnakes were just going to be out all winter. At least my, my rancher friend told me they were going to be out quite a bit. So oh. I'm kind of rattlesnake uh, adverse, let's say. And so I decided I better get back to Kansas and I spent the winter here instead. And it turned out really nice, except for the last, you know, end of January that was cold. Have you ever had any... Now you, we'll get into this today, but you've been hunting and running bird dogs for a long, long time. Have you ever had any bad encounter or any encounters, I guess, with rattlesnakes? Yeah, I've had a dog bit in mm-hmm. Montana and oh, three years ago, I was walking back to my truck and I just about stepped on one and, and it about bit me. I had to one hand it with my shotgun and shoot it before it bit me. Jeez. Yeah. So I, I'm really rattlesnake at burst now. So. I try to I try to avoid even hunting when they're out. And and it was almost the same exact date in September that my dog got bit, that I almost got bit. It was actually like the, the end of September, the thirtieth. And I think that they were going to den. They they move around during the day going to den then. But that's the only two I've actually ever seen in Montana. Oh, that's it was on the same day, just like that. So Yeah. Wow. What? So that's kind of like it. I have a I have a date. I try to avoid with respects <laughs> in Montana until the end of September. Yeah, yeah. Well, that makes that makes sense. That's typically when when you hear about it, at least. What happened with the dog? Kind of the did it? Was it just sort of one of those things where snap your fingers and all of a sudden the dog's bit and you're wondering what's going on? Did you see it happen? Well, it start. It was cool. I was hunting uh, farther west than I normally do, and we were hunting at the edge of this wheat field with native grass on part of it. And we started out and it was in the forties. It was cool. And we hunted till around oh, 10, 30 or 11. It was starting to warm up and we hadn't gotten any birds and we were heading back to the truck and, and both my, all my dogs were snake broke and walked along and all of a sudden my old dog, Jack, I could tell he was, he was like, they'll point them like from, they'll smell them from a great distance. And okay. he, I could tell he was pointing one. And then my other dog, Nate, he's a big runner. I mean, really big runner. And so he ran by and, and then he was pointing it too. So they were both pointing. And then I heard it rattling. I actually heard it then. It was probably about, oh, 15 or 20 yards in front of me off to the side. And then I saw Nate, he was holding up his back leg and he had been bit. Mm. So apparently he had, you know, like I said, he's, he, he runs hard. He must've just ran right by it. And it actually bit him on the bottom of his back foot. As he ran by. Wow. Not a, yeah. So not a, not a front facing hit or anything. No, uh, no, I don't think I don't. And there wasn't any wind, you know, and once their snake broke, you know, they can smell them and hear them and see them. You, you try to get them any three ways they should avoid them. And he, there's no way he could have smelled it or heard it, you know, and, and he must've just ran right by it and it bit him on the way by, you know? And so I took him down to, to a vet and a vet. You know, it was pretty much saw a lot of snake bites and she was like, he'll probably be okay. And just gave him some antibiotics and we went on our way. That was that. Yeah. And he got sick for a couple of days. He, they have to metabolize the, the venom mm. in their system. It was his back legs swole up real bad and he got real sick, couldn't hold his, you know, food down for a day or two. And, and, but after a couple of days, it was like, he was just back to normal. Wow. I didn't really bump him that much. Well, that's the good, that's the good part, the recovery. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, you know, I, I was more worried when I about stepped on one because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not too worried about of it being, you know, fatal, 
But I think what would have worried me is if I would have got bit, you know, I hunt by myself. No doubt I probably would have had to go to the hospital for a few days. Right. And I wouldn't have had anybody take care of my dog. So it's really more, I try to avoid them, me getting bit so I don't have to worry about my dogs. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I guess I'm thinking, you know, you don't hear about people getting bit by snakes and, and that's a good thing. Yeah. But, but I don't know, like, do you... You know, I guess I can, the images that I'm conjuring up in my mind are like probably like scenes from a movie or something when somebody gets bit and like maybe you get sort of like lethargic and, but like, what would you do? I mean, if you got bit, like you probably want to get into town quickly. Well, to tell you the truth, this has been a few years ago and, and, and Nate, I struggled with Nate really get him staunch on birds and, and he had just had a great morning hunting some huns and that killed a couple of huns on him. So I was, you know, I, I was walking on, on air so sure, speak, sure. I was so happy so I really wasn't paying that much attention we were walking back to the truck and I looked down and I and, and I'm like oh there's a rattlesnake and I'm like, oh my gosh he's curling up he's gonna bite me oh <laughs> and it was just like I one hand you know I got I had my shotgun in my right hand and I just I shot him right there right below my feet wow right at me getting ready to bite me and so it, it kind of freaked me out a little bit and, and it was like you know something you'd see in a western or something you know right did you save so the I, tail I or anything? Pardon me? Did you save the tail or anything? I have a picture of it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, it was a pretty good sized rattlesnake. Yeah. It's, and they're all prairie rattlers up in Montana. You know, they're not real poisonous, but they're still poisonous some. You know? Okay. Yeah. That's unbelievable. So yeah. did, have you had your dogs go through that sounded like you've maybe done the snake breaking? Like do you do yeah. that yourself or do you do clinics? No, or? no. I had a, a trainer that lives out uh, west of Lewistown that that's, he does snake breaking and he okay. usually has a clinic like right before the season starts and, and he'll go through, you know, there'll be, you know, 40, 50 dogs there. And, and it's pretty simple, you know, simple thing. And, and, and it, I think it's, it's, it's very valuable. Obviously it's not 100% foolproof, mm-hmm. but I also went back a year or two after I had all my, my dog snake broke. And he'll, you can test them and, and what they'll do is they'll put the, he has a defanged snake, you know, so it can't really bite him. Yep. But it, I mean, it, it does bite him, but it doesn't have any teeth, you know, when you're breaking them. Mm-hmm. And so he'll put the snake out in the grass and then you just let your dog free range around it and see how they react. And, you know, so all my dogs, you know, you put it downwind so they can smell it. But as soon as they smell them, they're like, no, we're not, we're not going near that thing. That's good. You know? Yeah. But it was interesting. I have a, a female that she started smelling it and she was like, oh, that's kind of interesting and actually started walking toward it. Mm. And then all of a sudden, as soon as that snake rattled, it was like she had got shocked again. It was amazing. Wow. As soon as she heard it rattle, she it was like she had got shocked, you know, full blast with the e-collar. And uh, so she, you know, she obviously, the, the smelling part of it didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. She had, she had forgot that part but yeah but the audio yeah yeah. she she didn't forget that yeah and and my old dog jack he had been snake broke many years ago and i actually tested him and 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 they can smell them from like 30 yards if the wind's right they can smell from great distances have you then seen so yeah it sounds like i was going to ask you it sounds like it's been successful you you don't you don't go back and do it every year but you can kind of do a little refresher yeah if you want yeah i just did did it that one time you know and then that was before i I almost stepped on one. And so, you know, now I just, I just, I don't really want to even hunt when there's, you know, a possibility of there being snakes. Yeah. So, 
you know, I, I just, I just try to avoid hunting, you know, until I think they've gone to the dens and then. Uh, yeah. There was something I was going to ask you. We talked snakes. Oh, all right. Let's, let's circle back to Kansas. So okay. your, your season, your season just ended earlier this week. And I know you, you didn't hunt the last day, but, and we've, we've had a little bit of weather, but it's been pretty mild, but were you, were you getting some good hunts in? into the into the new year a little bit in january of up towards oh, the yeah. end it, it was a beautiful year this year here it was really warm it, it didn't snow or rain hardly much a little bit a little bit but not not enough to really you know make you want to stay out of the fields and the bird numbers were pretty good and uh then that arctic front that came through i mean it really it really shut everything down i mean shut the whole the whole state down where i was at you know everything was shut down because it was really bad and uh then i got out it, it's warm. It warmed back up the last four or five days of the season. And I got out and hunted three days and I hunted the same ground. I, I normally will hunt the same covey of quail, maybe two or three times a season and maybe kill a bird or two out of, out of the covey each time. And so I, I went back and hunted some ground that I'd hunted previously in, in the season and did real well on. And, and I hunted three different covers. And I'd gotten into at least five coveys on those three covers. And when I hunted it after the cold front, I found one small covey in all three of them. And so they had really, I think, had a, you know, had a tough time. I don't think they died from the cold because the habitat's really good. But I'd say the, the predators really, you know, really hit them hard because they were pretty wild. I couldn't get close to them. What do you know about, because I know we, we chatted yesterday and you mentioned you kind of went to your, your, one of your go-to quail resource books, which, which yeah. you should mention, but what do you know about winter survival? Like what, where do the quail retreat to? Where do they go? Is it heavy grass? Is it woody, shrubby cover? Where do they go when it's that cold? Yeah, they, they, they go to the thickest, thickest cover they can find to stay out of the wind, yeah. you know? And, you know, I think that what the, that book, it's, it said that, you know, whenever there's a, you know, a severe weather, you know, you know, there's a die off that the remaining birds will actually produce better because they have more abundant resources to, you know, make it through the winter on then the rest mm-hmm. of the winter, you know, they don't have to, you know, like, like say you have enough food for 10 birds, but you only have six now. Well, see, they're going to be pretty good because right. they've got all food for 10. And so they'll come out of the winter and better breeding you know, condition and they'll, they'll, they'll have larger clutches of, of eggs and such. Then. Kind of a rebound you know, so, effect. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, there's, I think there's enough remnant around that hopefully next year, you know, us bird hunters who always hope for next year and the, right. <laughs> good hatch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so hopefully next year there'll be a good hatch here. We're always reflecting on the, on the season that just went by and then looking ahead to the next one and with that, sometimes you sometimes you can lose sight of sort of the longer history or perspective of sort of what yeah. we're dealing that those ebbs and flows. What with quail, like I guess my understanding of them is that they are like a lot of upland birds. They they really can ebb and flow. There can be real significant highs and lows in the in the area that you are just in general. Like what is the kind of your overall sense of quail? Like is it a pretty healthy population that's that's pretty viable to to hunt and and find birds each year. Or are there some years that are real lean? Like because you were you were kind of mentioning to me that you're on kind of the edge of 
of sort of that northern Bob White territory. So I'm just wondering, like, if there's if they if they're really on the fringe of their range, like what that looks like from a consistency perspective. If that makes any sense. Well, the 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 Bob White northern Bob White, you know, is distributed, you know, all the way from here down into Mexico, and you know, when you get down in the desert areas, you know, in Texas and New Mexico and Arizona, there's actually other species down there, but the the Bob White down in, in the areas, in the desert areas, they're really dependent on the rain, mm. you know, cause it's, it's a desert, it's dry. And so their, their numbers can fluctuate wildly with the rains. You know, if they don't get the rains, they may not have any hatch at all. Where, where I'm at here in Northeast Kansas, you know, that we get over 40 inches of rain a year. So it's, you know, there's quite a bit of rain and the, the problem where I'm at here is not, not the drought. It's more, too wet and cool of a spring okay and, and they won't make it they won't have a good hatch because it's been too moist and so this year by agricultural standards this area here was in a drought because they they got half their normal rain but half their normal rain here is 20 inches mm. so it may not have been a good year for crops but it was a pretty good year for quail it native really native game birds are doing all right with yeah. 20 inches yeah yeah so you know, so when you look at, you know, if you're looking to, to come to Kansas or really anywhere, you know, where you're, they're dependent on the moisture or too much moisture, as in this case, you know, you might look at the drought monitor and, oh my gosh, they're in a drought. There's not going to be any birds. Well, that's, that may or may not be true, you know, because like a, say a drought out in Western Kansas where they get 20 inches of rain. Well, they, they may have only got 10, you know. Yeah little drought here you're still getting 20 inches of rain and they'll still have a good hatch do you have a do you have a favorite bird i mean are quail kind of your favorite bird it sounds like you get around and chase yeah. different birds but do they sort of stand yeah. out for you yeah quail quail bob white quail are my favorite bird to hunt by far they're 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 very tasty for one thing mm. and they're good for the dogs you know they, they hold well and where i've always hunted here in the midwest you know you're 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 gonna have birds you know, because they're just, the habitat usually is pretty good and, and you're, you're reliably going to have some rain. And one of the things that, that they've been recently doing some studies over in Missouri, Southwest Missouri, they radio collared a bunch of, a bunch of hens and they did some studies on the hatch where normally, you know, when they study quail, they, they'll radio collar them during the hunting season to see, you know, how many of them are killed by hunters. So this was kind of a unique study where they, they radio collared them during the hatch. And it was an amazing study because they found out a lot of the places that the quail liked to nest weren't the places that they thought they did. Mm. And, you know, it's been a, I, I don't know if you want to call it a law, but a principle that, you know, the, the peak of the quail hatch was the beginning of June. I mean, that was just, everybody believed that. Okay. Well, they found out that actually the peak is in August, much later than what they thought, because all the the late nesters and the re-nesters. And so there, there's like, there'll be a, a, a peak, you know, of the first nesters that, that'll pull off a hatch in June. And then there'll be a, actually a bigger hatch, according to their studies that they did of the radio collar birds in August. So, you know, the they're in this area here, you know, you're, you're usually going to have some birds, you know, if the habitat's good. You know, you like there'll be some birds here. There won't, you know, there won't be birds like you're going to find maybe down in Texas. You know, where you're going to run into twenty or thirty coveys a day during good year. Yeah. Or, you know, good years. 
But here, you know, you might, if you, a good day here, I would say if you run into four or five cubbies a day, that's a good year. When does, when does the season get started? Is it October? It starts in, in Missouri, which that's where I first started hunting. It starts, it opens November 1st. And then I think that, uh, Nebraska, which actually has some pretty good quail numbers, it opens last Saturday of October, I believe. And then here in Kansas, it opens, uh, the second Saturday in November, it opens quite a bit later here. Okay. Yeah. That, that just makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think in, in, in Iowa, Iowa, there's some, there's some pretty good quail hunting in Southern Iowa and it, and it opens the, the last Saturday in October too. Right. Okay. Yep. That's, that is a, that is a bird I have yet to, I've not, I've not hunted wild quail. Um, yeah. I need to do that. At there some they're a they're a really neat bird to hunt. They're good for the dogs. They're 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 tough to shoot. You yeah. know, I mean, especially here around where I hunt and and have hunted in Missouri because you know there's a lot of there's still a lot of timber, and so it's 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 sometimes if you hunt by yourself for sure it's it's similar to hunting and shooting rough grouse in the timber. You know, because they're going to stay in that timber, they're not going to get out of it. And they'll they'll flush out the other side of the bush. Oh yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah, they'll they'll keep everything between you and in themselves, you know, to get away from you. And so, you know, a lot of times, you know, this year, a lot, I hunt by myself and, and many mm-hmm. times a lot of really good, good dog work, but not very many shots. <laughs> yeah. That's a com- common topic of conversation amongst myself. Yeah. Some of the grouse, just as you say, grouse hunt. I mean, yeah. the difference between one dog and one shooter versus one dog and two shooters, you know, both are enjoyable. Like you said, I mean, there's there's not many more things that I enjoy than following just me and one of my dogs going through the grouse woods. Just that that yeah, I can wander anywhere. I'm not paying attention to anything but the dog. But you are you will inevitably get some of those frustrating moments where you think to yourself, "Geez, if I only had a buddy yeah. standing on the other side of the spruce tree there." I think the other thing about hunting bobwhite quail is I think the coveys are fairly easy to find for for any you know like you could bring a dog, you know, a grouse dog down here and they'll, they'll find the coveys because, you know, you're talking about 10, 12 birds are putting off quite a bit of sand, Sure, but hunting the singles for dogs that haven't hunted wild quail before, it's, it's quite a challenge because, it, you know, they don't put off a, one bird does not put off a whole lot of scent. And I, I've, I've had, you know, grouse hunter, grouse hunting friends come down and they've got good dogs, good grouse dogs, no doubt. And my dogs will be pointing singles and their dogs will just be running around like, mm. what, what's he pointing? Because <laughs> it takes a while to adjust to the, you know, it's kind of a, you know, and I think that's why the, the birds survive a lot is because even good dogs won't find all the singles. You know, right, right. Yeah, it's a survival time. mechanism, right? The covey breaks yeah. up and they scatter and then they yeah. reconnect. What's your, so now if this dips into ethics and stuff, I, I'd be curious, but like, what is your you break up a covey do you shoot the covey rise and then you sounds like you follow up singles but what's your what's your sort of ethos as far as far as how you approach hunting a covey and breaking one up and hunting singles well you know there's some debate there a little bit between quail hunters i've i've hunted down in texas on some leases down there and down there the lease i hunted on you couldn't you couldn't hunt singles you could you just shot Only the covey, covey rise and, yeah and then moved on course you know you get into 20 cubbies a day yeah you know so but then another thought is that a lot of times if you shoot it at the covey 
you might hit birds that you don't knock down mm-hmm. and they're going to die later mm-hmm. that, that you don't kill them. So some people won't shoot on a covey rise. They'll just, they'll just shoot singles. Cause then you make sure you don't wound any other birds. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm kind of in the middle there. I'll shoot on a covey rise. I mean, once you get used to, you know, when you first start quail hunting, there's no doubt you're going to blast at a covey and not hit anything yeah. as you just covey shoot, you know, and I don't think, I think that's normal. You know, and so it was nor- normal in my, I mean, I don't have a lot of experience shooting covey birds, but it, it's, I've got a ways to go <laughs> as far as keeping my, keeping my head straight. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you see, you know, 15 birds get up and you're, you just shoot at them and, and none of them drop and you're like, what? How come I <laughs> those birds, you know, yep. and you may have, that's the deal. You may have, and they, you just didn't hit a wing, right? you know, or something like that. But, you know. When I hunt anymore, when a covey gets up, I'm real patient. You know, I wait to see if there, you know, usually there's one or two that's going to go a different direction yep. or, you know, flare off or they're, or a straggler, you know. And so on a covey rise, you know, I'll, I might pick a bird off if, if I make sure I'm not going to, you know, shoot into the covey or something. And, and but, but the real, the real thing is, is, is hunting singles, I think that, and that way, you know, you know, for sure, whether you're, you hit the bird or not. And, and it's, it's more of a challenge for your dog, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's easier for you shooting singles. I mean, you know, when you're, you know, when you bust up a covey and then you know where they go and your dog's over there and he comes down on point, you know, there's going to be generally, there's going to be a bird there. Right. And so you can walk in and flush it and, and usually you get a pretty good shot. Yeah. Yeah, you could absolutely see the fun and the anticipation in yeah. that. And yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So you've obviously, you've been doing this for quite a while. I've mentioned that, but what, take me back to the to the start, Mike. I, I'm, I'm, I'm always curious how people find their way into upland bird hunting. I mean, what, what hooked you and, you know, first birds, first shotguns? Like, give me some of the, okay. some of the beginning, the origin story. Well, I've, I've been a hunter for a long time. I started, you know, small game hunting when I was like 10 years old, you know, I'm, I'll be 65 in, in May. So I've been hunting a long time. Hey, you retired early. Yeah. Congrats. And, well, I had to, I had to bird hunt. So <laughs> good for you. <laughs> anyway, you know, I've been small. I've, I was a small game hunter for a long time. And when I grew up hunting, there was no big game. There were no deer and turkeys heart. It was all small game, you know, squirrels, rabbits, occasional, you know, I might flush a covey of quail every now and then and, and shoot one, but I didn't have bird dogs or anything. And, and so, you know, I went to college and, and I still small game hunted. And when I got out of college, I was living in uh, Sedalia, Missouri. I was working for a utility company there and uh church I was going to, uh, one of the one of the guys there, he was a bird hunter and he invited me to go bird hunting with him. I was, oh, early twenties. And, uh, so we went out and, uh, I remember to this day, I can, I can, I could pinpoint it on Google map exactly where it was. His, he has some Britneys in this Britney came down on point on this pile of brush. And my friend goes, go in there and flush that covey. And I'm like, what? And he goes, that dog's on point. There's a covey of birds there. Hmm. And I'm like, what? Okay. So I walked in there and sure enough, Covey got up. Of course I didn't hit anything, you know, (laughs) you shot though, but, but you know, from that moment on, it was like, that was just magic. It was like, that was just magic. And so, you know, I don't know 
it's still magic. I don't know what else to say. You know, when the, when the, when the dog's pointing a bird, it's, it's just, it's just magical to me. And, and it's, it's causing me to retire early and do all kinds of things. I think, you know, <laughs> that magic. So did, <laughs> did that make you a Brittany man for life? It did that spring. I hunted with him all winter, that first winter I hunted. And, and that spring I got a, I got my first Brittany and he was a, he was a great dog. His name was Jake. And, and I hunted with him and, and many people were like, you know, that's a good dog. You ought to breed him. So I got a female and, hmm. and I had a few litters of pups with them. And, and then, you know, he, he passed on and, and I had two of his sons I kept with me that I hunted till they were like, oh, I think they were 12 and 13. And I was, I was like, man, I, I need to start looking for a dog, you know? And so I saw an ad in the paper and I got, I got a French Brittany then from this breeder west Topeka in the Flint Hills and his name's Jack and Jack's been my bird dog of a lifetime and just tremendous dog. He's, he's 14 now and he'll be 15 in April. Mm -hmm. So I've got some pups out of him. He was a good dog and I got some pups out of him. And so, yeah, I've been kind of a, a Brittany guy and, yeah. and probably always will be, I would think, you know. What do you remember about going back to your first dog? I mean, what do you remember about, you know, was there training and I mean, did you just basically take them and hunt them and like any yeah. sort of funny stories of like things you think back on and just laugh about? Well, when, when I first started, when I first started quail hunting, it was prime, it was quail hunting in, 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 in Missouri, West central Missouri. And all my friends had Britneys that I hunted with. And, uh, you know, I didn't know what to do. I'm like, well, what do I need to train him? And every, every one of my Brittany friends would tell me just, you just need to do obedience training, you know, get him to come and stay. And, and they're all, they, and if it's a good dog, it'll, it'll just naturally, it's bred to do, to hunt birds and it'll hunt. And, and every Brittany that I've ever had, I, I, that's all I do. I just teach them the, the obedi obedience training, you know, and they, they figure it out eventually, you know, that, you know, they all point hold birds and they back and they retreat you know I've, I've never had one that didn't do that so you're a fairly hands-off well hands-off maybe not the right word but but sort of do the obedience training and then just yeah. let, let them develop yeah bird contact but I, and think hunting. The, but I think you know to be quite honest with you it may be harder to do that now because there just aren't the same number of wild birds as there was right you know that i've been that i've been had access to to my hunting you know, experiences because most of the place, most of the places that I've lived, I've been able to like walk out my front door and, and get into quail. Yeah. So, you know, I could take my puppies out and they'd be getting into wild birds, you know, the first year they hunted, you know, right away and, you know, had home cubbies where I didn't shoot very many of them and, you know, was able to work my dogs on them and such. Yeah. You know? So I don't know, that may not you know, be true for a lot of folks, especially folks that like live out East, you know, that, that, uh, there just aren't very many wild birds. You know, I, I don't know if you could still do that there. You know, I don't know. Yeah. That's definitely a critical component to that method. You, you got to have the yeah, birds to exactly. let the birds yeah. teach the dog, if you will. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you, did you ever go as far as, you know, did you have a pigeon coop or anything like that? Or are you pretty much just relied no, no. on wild birds? No, just wild birds. That's it. My, none of my dogs have ever seen any pen raised birds at all ever. Well, I shouldn't say that I did try. I, I did one time. I'm like, well, let's just see what my dogs will do. So I, I bought some quail, you know, 
<laughs> and I put them down. They wouldn't even point them. They'd just pick them up and bring them to me. Oh, gosh. You know? And I think it was because they knew they, 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 I don't know if they had a human smell on them. Yeah. They, they just didn't, they smelled like, or they smelled like they were injured, you know? And, and so they just hunted them like they were dead birds, you know, like, you know, you tell a dog to hunt dead, you know, they would just go over and they might, you know, might they might, you know, you know, point them for an instant and then they just pick them up, bring them to me. Yeah. So I've never, I've never thought that that would be a good thing to do with my dogs. You know, and, and that may just be particular to my dogs and me, you know. So it sounds like, what about like steadiness training? I mean, it doesn't sound like you've got into a whole lot of that, you know, stop to flush and, you know, that kind yeah. of, you're just kind of, you're hunting your dogs and they're, they're at least steady to flush and backing yeah. and pretty natural. I did, I did, when Jack was younger, I did break him and, and I field trialed him three or four times okay. and, and uh, I got a title on him. But I didn't keep him broke, you know, completely broke. He's, you know, they'll, all my dogs, they'll, they're steady to the, to the flesh. Mm-hmm. And then, so I, that's the only one I have had though. I have one now I've seen two of my dogs are actually naturally broke to the flesh. They would actually, they, they would not break on the flesh. They Interesting. Would be staunched. Yeah. And I, and I didn't do it. And then anything I did, they were just naturally like that. Yeah. You know, they, they, they won't release until, until I tell them to. And so I don't know what happened. (laughs) Well, that's, that's pretty, pretty natural. I mean, I would, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't complain if my dogs did that. Yeah. Yeah. I've got, in fact, I've got the, I've got pictures of, you know, there's kind of a, you know, bird hunters talk about the progression you go through as you, as you go through your bird hunting experiences, you know, and you, you first start out and you just want to kill a bird and then. You might want to kill a limit or something. And then as you get farther along, it's, well, I'm, I'm going to make it more difficult or challenging, or I'm only going to shoot this, or I'm only going to do that. And so I'm at that, I'm at that point in my bird hunting career. I don't really kill very many birds, but I, my goal is, you know, like my dog's on point. I'll want to walk up and take a picture. I try to get a picture of every, of every bird I kill with my dog on point. Mm-hmm. And then cool. I'll shoot. Yeah, I'll shoot the bird and then I'll get my camera back out and I'll take a picture of retrieving the bird. So that's, that's kind of like my extreme, you know, way I like to hunt. Yeah. The, the, so the I, evolution I actually, of your, your bird hunting. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so I actually have some pictures of my dogs where the birds are flushing and they're still staunch. They're not chasing at all. And I didn't do that. That's just, it's just natural. Yeah. I do it naturally. So that's cool. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I, I think maybe I've just been lucky and blessed at the same time. Maybe, you know? <laughs> well, it could be both. Yeah. But that's yeah. there. There, I love those pictures. You know, my dogs, it's funny. My, my dogs don't really, they don't really bring them back to me and, and I don't, I've never force fetched them or anything. My younger yeah. setter, she'll pick the, she'll pick grouse up and she likes to prance around with them. And I try, I do try to get pictures, but some of my other friends that have more versatile dogs or just better retrievers they get these you know awesome pictures of their dogs coming back to them with the bird's wing over the nose i just i love i love that stuff i mean that's that's what it's all about yeah yeah i I think you know personally i think that you know having a a dead bird dog is much more important than the dog that you know retrieves the hand you know i mean you'd you'd really want to have both right Right, but if you if you have a dog that that will hunt dead for you and find dead birds, that's very valuable, especially for quail. You know, when you hunt wild quail, I because, can imagine. Yeah, 
man, they're tough to find. They're really hard to find, you know, if, if you don't have a dog. Especially like know, in grass, you know, I mean, heavy grass, like that's, man, you start looking for a bird in grass and it's, it's always, it's always eye opening for me when I'm looking around for, for birds in the woods, you know, that's challenging in its, in a way, yeah. but it's yeah. not like they're not getting swallowed up in, in heavy grass, like some, like yeah. a small hun or a quail is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and quail are so small, you know, that they're in there and they, they blend right in. Right. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I, I've gone up before where, when my dog's been on point and I'll sit there and just, just look to see if I can see the birds. And I, I, I've only seen maybe in, in my many years of quail hunting, maybe one or two cubbies on the ground that I actually could see before they flushed. They're just so hard to see They They just blend in so well that you just, you can't see them, you know? And then once you do see them, it's amazing that as soon as you, you may I make eye contact, like they, they know once you see them and oh, yeah. flush, even, even though you don't move, just, just making eye contact with them is enough that they'll flush. Yep. Yeah, I've, I've, I do. I mean, I, I would, I would imagine a lot of listeners would kind of, you have that experience where you, when you make eye contact with that animal, like there's this moment of tension, and you know, a lot of it's probably in your own mind and and body, but I, there's something to that. I mean, it, it's real yeah. because see, oh, yeah. you've seen them take off and flush enough after the after you do lock eyes with a bird or yeah. a deer or anything like that. You know, they, there's there's yeah. a sense there. Uh, I've, I've, I've only did that just a few times though, because they normally, you can't see them. Yeah. You know, they're just so well camouflaged. Gearing up for your next hunt, check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Jack. Let's talk about Jack. This is something that I've been interested in just 
you know, you've had, you've had dogs over the years, you've been doing it for a long time. Some dogs just kind of rise to the top and what, what makes Jack so special, you know, over his 14, 15 years, what's, what's kind of made him your dog of a lifetime? Well, you know, when I got Jack, he was my, he was my, he's my first French Brittany and I don't, it's, it's hard to explain. It just, you know, it, there's almost like a, we have a spiritual connection mm. and from the very get go, I, I got him in August, right before I made my first trip to Montana. Was he an eight week old pup? He was, he, he actually was four months old when okay. I got him. Okay. And so he was four months old and I got him like a week or two before I headed to Montana. And I hadn't did any work with him at all. No obedience training, nothing, you know, maybe a little bit, obviously, you know, yeah, yeah. in that week or so, but you know, not much. And I still had three American Britneys that I was hunting with and uh, my two older guys. And I had a young female, a younger female that I had too. And so I headed to Montana and, and the first night I was there, I stayed at this motel, you know, little motel in this little town. And, and the next morning, you know, I just, I just, I let the dogs out. They were in the truck. I let the dogs out, you know, to go to, the, you know, you go pee. Yeah. And, and, and Jack. Jack, I let him out and all of a sudden I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't even know if he'll come back to me. I hadn't done any work with him, you know? And so we're, you know, in this little town and, and he went over, he went across the parking lot and he did his, he did his duty and, and I called him. I, I don't think he even really knew his name hardly. And I called him and I, and he came right back to me and I don't know, there was just something about our relationship from the very get go that he just, he's just been. You know, his skills are great. He's loyal. He's, you know, he's just, he's just, he's the best dog. Even if he wasn't the best bird dog I'd ever had, he's the best dog, mm. all around dog I think I've ever had. And I've had a lot of dogs, you know, I've had different kinds of dogs and stuff. So yeah. he's, he's special. He's, he's still hunting at 14 and, and I don't know, he may still, he may, he, he may outlast me, <laughs> but he's hunted all kinds of birds. I've killed, you know. I've killed sage grouse, sharp tail, prairie chickens, you know, quail, different types of quail, rough grouse, blue grouse, turkeys. I've killed turkeys over them in Kansas. You no kidding. Hunt. Yeah, not you can't anymore. I think I don't think you can even fall hunt turkeys anymore because huh. the numbers are so down here now. But back when the turkey numbers were good here, they consider them upland birds, and in Kansas, you can actually hunt them with dogs in the fall. And so I've I've killed pointed turkeys over him which is a blast i i would love to do I, i've heard of that happening i know folks that have had you know their dogs point them and and but man to to shoot a, a turkey over a bird dog yeah. that would be that that would be unreal it's, it's pretty intense and 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 there's a technique to you know you know when you spring turkey hunt you know you you want to shoot them in the head you know with the mm -hmm. you know but it, and when you want to shoot a, a flush turkey, you actually want to shoot them under their wing because that's their, their most, their most vulnerable, their, their vitals are most vulnerable under their wing. Oh, There's wow. No, you know, because, you know, it's all just skin. There's no ribs or anything hardly there. So you want to time your shot to where their, their wings are, you know, extended and wow. shoot them under the wing. Yeah. I've, I've killed probably maybe half a dozen pointed turkeys. Jeez, it's, yeah. you know, I've, I've started hunting them now and, and, and obviously I'm only doing the spring hunting, which is totally different, but it's, I, I've, I've only seen, 
I guess I've only been around a few turkeys flushing, you know, just, just to even get eyes on a, on a bird flushing. Last year when I was hunting by myself, I was walking and I flushed a bird that I think might've been a Tom. I was walking down a trail and calling and he, he may, in hindsight, he may have been coming to look at me, but I, I'm still figuring out, like, I don't really know what I'm doing out there, but I've had, I've had a little (laughs) bit of success, but I was walking along and, you know, when I'm grouse hunting, I'm usually very ready but when I'm turkey hunting, I'm not, I got my gun on a sling and, you know, it's just not really what I'm out there to do. But this was one of the first exam or, or instances where I flushed this bird and he flew straight away from me for a long ways. Now I, I couldn't tell 100% that it was a Tom. So I probably never would have shot, but I just remember thinking, I mean, I, I had a, a really good shot at this bird. It just was interesting. It kind of stopped me and I was thinking about it and Man, if you had a dog on point, that would that would be next level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably probably the probably the coolest bird I killed over Jack was a, a sage grouse. I've only killed one sage grouse in Montana. And this was probably twelve years ago. You know, every, everybody that goes to Montana, you know, I want to kill a sage grouse mm-hmm. before they list them or something, you know, which which would probably happen one day. But anyway, you know, I would always make a couple of days out on my trip there to try to kill a sage grouse. And sage grouse country is really rough ground, you know, yep. cactus and rocks and rattlesnakes and such. And and so I'd usually try for a couple of days to kill a sage grouse. And so the first two years I went to Montana, we hunted for sage grouse and, and we I didn't find any, didn't see any of them. And so I uh, went out this one morning and uh, had three dogs down, Jack and and Jack's full brother D, and then one of my old American Brits, my old female, and uh, I was hunting three dogs down, and uh, we had it all morning, and it was starting to get hot, you know. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, snakes, you know. Yeah. And, and so we were. It was about ten thirty, and we were headed back to the truck, and all of a sudden Jack came down on point, and and I I let my dog naturally relocate on their own, you know on running birds. And so Jack started pointing and relocating like he was trailing a pheasant, you know, like you had pheasant. Hunt. That's what it looked like to me. And I, I don't think there's any pheasants out here and pheasant season wasn't open anyway. Anyway, he, 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 he pointed and relocated, I don't know, maybe half a dozen times. And so he went over this little ridge. And when I came over, man, he was locked up solid. And I walked down there and I flushed two gigantic, sage grouse, mm. two bombers, big ones. And I missed on the first shot oh. and then I hit one on the second. And that was, that's the sage grouse I killed over. But that's, that was probably the, probably I would think the only trophy bird I would say that I killed over, you know, and then, and it weighed, it weighed seven pounds. It was a big one. Jeez. That's unreal. Yeah, it was huge. Yeah. I, I've got pictures of them. It's just really, and that's the only sage grouse I've ever killed in Montana. Cause I, I just don't like to hunt that rough ground. Yeah. Yep. I've, I've done that a little bit, hunted sage grouse one time and I did kill one. It was not a bomber. I, I actually passed up a shot at a bomber that in hindsight, I don't think I should have my, my dog was pointing, but I was kind of, I was sort of conflicted as to, as to the dog work. And there was, there was some, some additional commotion going on there. So I didn't yeah. shoot that, but I did kill one and definitely appreciated seeing the birds and seeing the habitat. I, I yeah. haven't, haven't made any plans to go back or do it again, but Back to the, the turkey for a minute. Like okay. what, where, what kind of setup, like, cause I always wonder what would make a turkey hold? Cause 
when I'm where I'm hunting in the grouse woods, we now we do have turkeys now. I mean, I see their tracks, and there are some areas that I grouse hunt where there's a decent amount of turkeys. But I have yet to have one time one of my dogs kind of wild flushed one where all yeah, of a sudden well, I, all of a sudden I looked up and this bird was coming over me. But yeah. I imagine them running. You know, we're, I'm coming through with my dogs got bells on, and I imagine the turkeys aren't hanging around to see what we're doing. But there have been times where we've got a pointing and moving and, and nothing produces. And I sometimes will wonder like, geez, was that a Turkey? Like what yeah. makes a Turkey hold? Well, all the ones that I've killed have, have been in tall grass CRP, Okay, you know, where they're, they're hold they're holding tight in there. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, you know, it, you're, you're kind of surprised at first, you know, cause you're, you're expecting like a pheasant, you know, <laughs> yeah, but a tenth the like size. A pheasant. Yeah. And so, you know, the first, the first time they, that happens, you know, you'll usually miss cause you're just like, oh my gosh, you know, but then, you know, once you get used to that, the possibility and, and the, tur- like I say, the Turkey numbers used to be really tremendous around here where right. I'm at in, in the Northeast corner. And so, you know, you'd get, you, I, back then you could actually kill four turkeys in the fall and uh, wow. you could buy four, four tags. And so I always bought two tags and kept them with me just in case. And, mm-hmm. and I usually would kill one a year or so sometimes two. I killed two one year, but yeah, that's, it's a lot of fun. But the bad thing about it is if you're way away far from the truck and, and all the turkeys <laughs> that I killed on points, they were all big. Yeah. They were like 20 pounders. And carrying a 20 pound bird back to the truck from like a couple miles away, that's not a whole lot of fun, you know. Well, you got to get a final rise vest, Mike. (laughs) 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 But the turkey numbers are really bad. And I think they're bad really across a lot of, a lot of the country anymore. And so I, I don't even know if they have a fall turkey season here in Kansas anymore. I I think they eliminated it because the numbers are so low now. Yeah. Yeah. That is, I, I will admit I, that's, it's, it's just, I'm not educated on that, but I, I am aware of the, the sentiment and, and turkey numbers being going down in, in the South. And it's just, it's, I find it so, I guess maybe ironic or interesting because we're having the exact opposite thing here where turkeys yeah. have, have just expanded into yeah. an area that I've been hunting my whole life and we never had them. And now we do, and I have this opportunity. So it's really, I don't know, it's interesting. Well, I think, I think what it is, and you guys are probably going to go through it there just a little later on, it's just a natural predator and prey relationship. And so I noticed in the spring when I first started hunting, you know, around here, you know, 12 years ago when the numbers were really good that, you know, the turkeys would gobble all the time and they'd gobble on the ground. You can hear them gobbling all day long, you know, and then slowly, pretty soon, the only time they'd gobble would be on the roost. And the last year or two, I spring hunted, I, I was hunting and I, I, I got in and I, I got set up probably about, oh, 50 or 60 yards away from a bunch of roosted ones. And they were gobbling and I thought for sure they were, I was going to get, call them over. And there was a bunch of jakes there too. And when the jakes started flying down, a bobcat was right on them. I mean, right on them. As soon as they hit the ground, a bobcat got them. And so I think that you saw it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so I think the predators eventually figured out, you know, they hear something goblin that's dinner, it's dinner time. And so I think the predators finally figured them out. And I think the snakes figure out eating the eggs and Mm. they, they're starting to, the predators are just figuring them out. And 
So it'll, it'll ebb and flow. Yeah. You know, there's still the turkeys, but I don't, I think the, I think the peak number of turkeys here in Kansas and areas like this, they'll never be like they were like that. Again, yeah. You know? Yeah. Some, some of the gobbling studies that they've done too, I've, I've kind of, I've listened to some podcasts and where they, where they get a lot of hunting pressure, like they, they can pretty much see the turkeys will quiet down and they, yeah. they just start yeah. gobbling less, which I mean, that all, if you think about it from a natural selection perspective, you know, a bird that's has a tendency to be more vocal is likely to be killed yeah. and he's not passing yeah. his genes on. And I mean, factor well, some of that. In. About the same time, you know, I'd, I'd be calling and I'd call coyotes in with, yeah. with the turkey. Yeah. So they were, they were, they were keen on the, the hens. And so I think the, 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 just the predator just, just figured them out. It just, it takes them a while to do that. So, you know, it'll probably happen to you guys too. eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Probably. Well, it's, I'm kind of curious because this, this year I did get a, I got a tag in Wisconsin and Minnesota's over the counter. So I, I will have some turkey hunting ahead. And up to this point now, the, you know, as far as winter survival goes, I would say it's been a very easy winter for turkeys because the snow depth is about zero. And we, apart from that one cold snap, which obviously if they're here now, they can survive some cold, cold weather. But yeah. I think this has been a pretty good winter for deer and turkeys to this point so i'm kind of curious if yeah. we if i see some sort of an uptick this spring i don't time will tell but you uh, you mentioned to me yesterday that you did live in maine and and you mentioned grouse so i know you've done some grouse hunting how how long were you up there how much grouse hunting have you done well i lived in maine for a year and actually traveled to montana that year couldn't stay I away montana and kansas i'm not a i'm not a big rough grouse hunter okay but I did hunt. I did hunt Vermont that year, and and, and killed my first rough grouse oh, cool. that year in Vermont. And I think Maine. I was there. Oh, the first year I retired, I, I've been traveling around, and I spent the early part of May in northern Maine, and I was camped back on a, some some paper ground, you know, timber ground, you know, yep. near the Golden Road, so to speak. And I'd never heard rough grouse you know, drum before ever. Mm. And I was at this one spot where I was camped and there were literally grouse drumming in every direction around me. It was one of the coolest things I'd ever heard. Yeah. It was really neat. But the, I, 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 I'm a prairie hunter. I like to hunt out in the open and, but I've, I've grouse hunted in Vermont. I've grouse hunted in, in Minnesota. And I've, I've, Have you? I've killed, yeah, I've, I've killed grouse in Montana. I've killed a blue grouse in rough grouse in Montana. Okay. And, but I'm just not, I'm just not a, I, I like to be out in the open. I like to see my dogs <laughs> and, and, and I have to tell you, to be quite honest with you, I think rough grouse and rough grouse hunting is, is, is tough. It's, that's tough hunting. It's, you know, it's tough shooting for sure. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and I think it's tough because, you know, I think the, they, I think they run a lot more than you think they do. Yeah. Know? They, yeah, they definitely run. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I, I didn't kill any grouse in Minnesota. It, the birds have been pressured, and so it was tough to get close to sure. them. You know? yeah. But we saw quite a few, saw quite a few. How long ago was that? Oh, it's probably been 10 years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, I certainly understand. I mean, when I, when I get the chance to hunt open country and watch my dogs, I mean, I'm not complaining. I can tell you that. <laughs> I, I love yeah. that as well. <laughs> Anytime you can well, see your dogs work. Yeah. Yeah. When, when, one interesting thing is like 
years ago when I first started quail hunting in Missouri, uh, you know, Missouri actually gets a pretty good flag of woodcock. Okay. You know, and when we used to quail hunt, you know, I'm, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with woodcock now, but like when we used to quail hunt and our dogs would point a woodcock, we would yell out woodcock like they were a hen pheasant. Don't right, shoot it. Don't right. shoot Because <laughs> we didn't want to shoot it, you know, because we were, we had quail, you know, and the quail were much, just much better. To sure. Eat, sure. You know? But, uh, what about now? Well, what about now? Like, do you hunt any areas where you've got woodcock coming through? Well, actually I've had some wood, woodcock, Jack's pointed woodcock here where I'm at in Kansas. That's kind of why I was curious. Okay. Yeah. 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 Not very many, maybe three or four. Can you shoot we're, them? We're, I mean, do they have a season or what, what, what would be the. Yeah. Yeah. You, they have, they have a season here. Okay. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't shoot them, but in Missouri where I lived at one time, I killed. I got into a flight of them there and, and, and like killed my limit of woodcock in hmm. like 15 minutes one time there in Missouri, just, just cause it was fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, but they have a, they have a pretty good flight that goes through, you know, the Western Missouri for sure. You know? Yeah. It's interesting to the, just the habitat that they, that they move through and, and where, yeah. where folks see them along the way, you know, on their journey South. Mm-hmm. And, and north. Yeah. I think that, you know, now that the, the quail numbers in Missouri are, are, aren't nearly what they were years ago, I think that a lot of the bird hunters there have kind of adapted to woodcock. A little hunting. more attention on woodcock. Yeah. I, th- I know some hunters that actually, you know, I would consider them to be woodcock hunters, actually. Well, it's like we're, you know, when you got bird dogs, you kind of want to want to see them yeah. get on birds. So you yeah. you do what you got to do. Yeah. So I am curious too, given that you've been doing this a long time, you obviously have been bird hunting. I know you weren't listening to podcasts when you had, when you had your first bird dog and (laughs) there was no Onyx hunt. There was no GPS callers. I'm kind of curious what, what sort of technology you have, you have adapted to and sort of utilized. I don't know if you even need to run GPS callers on your dog, but do you use any of that stuff? Well, I'm kind of old school. I actually... Didn't even use training callers till about two years ago. Wow. Yeah. And so I, I, I've got some training callers and I'm not good with them. Let's say, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, the, the stim would, you know, when you stimulate them, you know, give them a little electric yeah. shock. Well, you know, I'd have a couple dogs down and, and I, I have Garmin, you know, where you can toggle them back and forth, you know, one mm-hmm. dog to the other. And so I would. I I've used them on my younger dogs. I never used them on Jack. And so, you know, I, I'd want to correct a dog, you know, and I'd, I'd give them a little light stimulus and it wouldn't do anything. I'm like, okay, see, so I'd crank it up a little bit more, I'd give them a bit more and it wouldn't do anything. So I'd, I'd like give them the shock and it wouldn't do anything. Well, I'm shocking the wrong dog. Oh gosh. Yeah. You yeah. know, I had them, I had it on the wrong dog. And so I just never was able to adapt to use in the, the e-collar portion of the training collars, but so I actually took the, the electrodes off. I don't even have them on my collars anymore because yeah. my poor dogs were getting shocked. They didn't know what was going on anyway, but I do use them now and I like them for the tone. Yep. You know, I use tone for recall and, uh, I use vibrate for stay. Okay. So Interesting. I do like them for that. And so that's probably the extent of my technology right there. Yeah. yeah it's, I mean, I, I say, wow, 
in that you you hadn't been using them. But to be honest, I I use mine in the same in a very similar way that you do. I pretty much only use Vibrate, and that's kind of a you know I've and I've heard trainers say oh, you don't really want to do do that, but you know everybody kind of finds their own way. I use Vibrate as like if I were in the woods, which is likely I can't see my dogs, but I kind of want them to check in. I'll hit the Vibrate. I don't use tone yeah. that way, but it's the same same idea. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, the number of times that I, I think when I first got my dog, you know, e-collars were a thing and I kind of felt like, oh, you get a hunting dog, you got to have an e-collar. So like I bought yeah. them right away and I kind of tried to figure them out. But the more, the longer it's been now, I feel like the less I, I actually use, I'm only using the GPS and then the vibrate feature. I yeah. mean, 99% of the time it's, I, I do know how to use the stimulation and I have, you know, I have that in my back pocket, but to your point, like the, the amount of times I actually feel I need to use that for my dogs is very, very low. Well, now don't get me wrong. I I think that they, for the folks that know how to use them, right. Or if I, or if I hunted, if I was a grouse hunter where, you know, I didn't, I wasn't able to see my dogs, you know, I would definitely want to, you know, have GPS and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, if I, if I, (laughs) if I was, technologically advanced enough to know how to toggle a back and forth and not shock the wrong dog. You know, I, I can see that's a very valuable training tool, no doubt. I mean, it's, it's not that I don't, you know, see the, the, the technological advantage of it. It's just that, you know, I'm so far down on the learning curve with how I've always handled my dogs that, you know, I'm an old dog and I can't learn new tricks. I guess, you know, what else to say? But I think that, I mean, I do think that's, again, I think it's, it's a good, it's, it's something to hit on just because I think a lot of people get a hunting dog and sort of assume they need a collar and again, myself included, but I mean, the quality of dogs, like, like a dog that, that is biddable and, and can develop naturally. I mean, the amount that you need to use that collar is, is probably a lot less than a lot of people might think when you're just, yeah. when you're just getting into it. So I think that's exactly, good, you know, yeah, and you, exactly. And, and I think, I think there's no substitute for backyard training for obedience. I think that, yeah. that you have to, you, you need to have that, you know, voice and, and maybe whistle, you know, recall. I mean, cause what, what if your battery's dead or what if, yeah. you know, whatever, you know, whatever happens that you need. So I think you need to have that foundation and then, and then you can build the training collar on top of that, you know? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And, and again, like, you know, if you're, if you, if you feel like you don't know exactly what you're doing, how to use it, you know, that's to just put that tool away, you know, don't use something yeah. that you don't know how to yeah. use or use it right. And, and go back to basics. Like you said, that's, yeah, that's I, more important. I felt so sorry for my dogs. <laughs> Cause you know, I'd be trying to correct them and they, they yeah. it's like, that dog's just blowing me off and I'd <laughs> crank it up and zap them. And I would my other dog would be yipping cause he'd be getting sad. And so I'm like, you know, that I'm not, I'm not, this isn't beneficial for me, you know, but, yeah. but I'm not saying it isn't beneficial for someone that's, that, that, that starts out using it. You know what I mean? There's plenty of video games. I don't play video games either. You never played bird hunter wild wings edition. No, 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 I, I, I haven't played any video games. Uh, uh, that's just way beyond my time. (laughs) I, I, I grew up in, in a little different area era, obviously, and, and have, have played my fair share of video games. But even now, like at this 
point in life. Sometimes I think I want to, but I just, I don't really have the time to do it. So I, I rarely do. Yeah. I've got yeah, more I, important I think things I to did, do. I think I did play a little Pong or something. Oh years yeah. Ago. There you go. Love it. What was the, I don't know if we mentioned it, but what was the name of that, that quail book that you mentioned? It's called On Bob White. Yeah. It's by Guthrie. Guthrie. Yeah. Okay. I'm, get, and, I, I was talking a lot about books recently and, and I always get listeners asking about book recommendations and sort of lists and stuff. So I like to mm-hmm. highlight that. Are, do you, are you a big kind of, do you have a big library of Upland books? Do you read a lot of that stuff? I do read a lot. I, I don't, I, I usually will check them out from the library okay. or I, I give them away. So I really don't keep them, you know, I kind of funnel them around. But that that's a good one. It's Guthrie is he's a scientist. He's you know, he's from Oklahoma State, I believe. And so all of his stuff is is scientifically based. You know, like a lot of the stuff that they'll do, like for example, you know, they talked about how, you know, fire ants were killing the quail. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, I've heard I've heard that. Well, yeah, well, he's he's got a he's got a a deal in there, you know, a study in there where they'll have two separate groups of quail, and most of his research has been done like in Texas, you know, or southeast, you know, tall timbers and so forth, and so they had two different groups of quail, and on one of the groups they killed all the fire ants. I mean, they went in there and just they killed them all, and so on the other group there were fire ants there and so they would do the research and they found out there wasn't any difference in, in the number of birds it didn't make any difference whether the fire ants or not and they and they'll have another where they'll have like guzzlers waters for them yep. and the other ones they won't and they found out now that doesn't make any and so it's a, it's a very scientific study of bomb white quail and it's mainly done texas ranchers that are wanting to make money off their quail basically so the studies are to show them how to manage their the ranches down there for for quail basically for wild quail. Okay. What about any other? Do you have any other favorite books or anything? Any recommendations? Yeah, I had one. But I can't remember it now. See, I'm getting really old. Can't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever read uh, Call of the Quail? Does that ring a bell? No. It's. I want to say. I've got a copy here. It's in it's in plastic wrap. It was, I bought it used, but yeah, Country Sport Press. They did all these anthologies. There's one on grouse, one on woodcock, and I was getting recommendations from people last year, and I I picked. I think I got a pretty good price on this one. It was still, it's hard, you can't hardly find the grouse and woodcock ones, but I I know I found the quail one. Haven't read it, but if it's anything like the other ones, there's also one called A Breed Apart, which is uh that's all about dogs but same country, uh-huh. country sport press. And that's just, I just love that stuff. And especially this, this time of year, it's good reading. So I got to crack open you, that quail one. I'll tell you an author. I can't remember the name of his book, but his name's Joel Vance. Okay. And he worked for the Missouri department of conservation. And I think more of a writer than a, any type of biology work, but he, he has some books out on quail hunting in Missouri. And I can't remember mm-hmm. the titles of, but the, the author's name, Joel Vance. And, okay. Any book by him on quail because he's he's a quail hunter and 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 I think he there's one book he wrote that kind of highlights his you know history of quail hunting in Missouri and how it went downhill and why it went downhill mm. and the causes of it and so forth. It's a real good book. I can't remember the the name of it, but he he didn't write a whole lot of books. There'll only two or three. 
they'll all be good, all three of them. Yeah, two cool. or three of them. I'll try to track yeah. those down and yeah, put a link up. Awesome. Uh, did you ever did you ever get the the shotgun bug? I didn't ask you. Like, what kind of guns do you shoot? And do you ever do you ever well, get, go down that rabbit hole? When I when I first started hunting, I I shot a twenty gauge Wingmaster. Okay. Remington eight seventy, and then I you know of course you know you have to get into the double guns then. <laughs> it almost so seems I, inevitable, but I was curious. Yeah, and so and so I I I shot a a Mossberg. I think they're like a, a silver invert, silver, silver reserve or something. I yeah, feel like I've heard of that. Reserve. Yep. Yeah. I, I bought one of those and I bought it. It had a two barrel set. Oh, really? Know, 28 gauge, 20 gauge. Yeah. No kidding. And of course it, it was, it was a heavy, it was a 20 gauge frame. So it was still fairly heavy, yeah. you know, but I shot it well. And, and then I, I shot, I shot a CZ 28 ring neck for many years. Okay. And I, I bought a new one. Oh, many years ago when I went to Montana and I had a problem with it. I, it was a, it was a single trigger selecting, you know, selective barrel. And when I would shoot, both barrels would go off. Oh, yep. Doubled. And, and so I called CZ and, you know, they're, they're handmade. The, the, they were in, and so none of the parts are interchangeable. And so they said probably just one of the, the, the trigger need adjusted. And they said, you know, it was under warranty. If I'd send it in, you know, they would repair it, send it back to me. And I said, well, you know, bird season just opened. I, I don't want to give it up, you know? <laughs> so I started just shooting it as a single barrel. Slow, I just one side one shot in. And I have to tell you, that was one of the best things I ever did mm-hmm. because my shooting improved so much because you don't take bad shots then, you know, and you, you're real selective on your shots when you know, you just got one. Yep. And so. My shooting percentage shot up to where I just didn't hardly miss with it, you know, because I didn't take very many shots, yep. basically, you know. Well, so now I I was I actually wanted to get it. I think they weighed more than five pounds. They were like five pounds. 10 that was pounds a that was a twenty eight gauge ring neck. Yeah, twenty eight okay. gauge. Yeah, yep. I think. And so I was actually looking for an even lighter gun. So I was looking for some like a like a single shot you know, break mm-hmm. open single shot and, and all the old single shots that you can find, you know, like the Stevens or, you know, all those old ones, they're just, they're smooth barrel. They don't have a ventilated rib on them at all. And so I got to looking at these real, they're really cheap guns. It's a, uh, it's called a Hatfield okay. single shot. And they're and the only place they sell them is at Walmart and they sell them for like 125 bucks. And so I thought, you know, I'll give that a try. And so I bought one like two or three years ago and, and they're really, the re- some of the reasons they're so cheap is, is they're, they're fixed choke. They don't have choke chairs, sure. you know? So I actually, when I bought it, it was a 28 inch barrel and I like 26 and it was, and it was modified. So I cut the barrel off two inches with a hacksaw and the man, I tell you what, I can shoot that gun. Cylinder choke. <laughs> did they have it? Did you find it in twenty eight gauge or is it a twenty or what is it? No, just a twenty. They okay. don't. They make them in four ten. That makes sense. Which I, I didn't. I didn't think I was that good of a shot to go to a four ten. Yeah. But uh, they're 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 a tough gun to get used to because they're they're a they're a hammer gun. Okay. Yep. But but they also have a like a bar safety like you'd find on an eight seventy. You know you got to push the you got to push that button to release the safety. Yeah. And so for a while. You know, I, I would either, I'd come up on a point and I'd, 
I either wouldn't have it cocked or I would forget to turn the safety off. So it took me a while to get used to adjusting to make sure it was cocked. <laughs> yeah. So now whenever I go in on a point, I, okay, I think it's cocked. Just got to turn the safety off now, you know, <laughs> but, but I, I shoot it really well. I don't, I don't shoot it nearly as many birds as I used to, Yeah. you know, but, but it's so cheap. And, and one of the other aspects about it, I really like is it, it almost folds in half. And so you can, I can fold it and it'll sit right on my shoulder to where I'm like, I'm like hands-free. Sure. It, it, it just sit there and, and it's, it's pretty ugly, you know, it's, <laughs> but you know, I've been pretty happy with it. I, I, I would like to uh, go back to shooting a, a double barrel again at some time, but for right now it's, it's working for me and, you know. Well, I am quite certain that the very first grouse I ever killed was killed with a single shot hammer gun 20 gauge from walmart but that grouse <laughs> that grouse was as we might say that was in the pre-flight position mike it was, ah. it was not on the wing so the 10 year old nick didn't have any trouble working the hammer and <laughs> safety at the time yeah well i think that the the main reason i i i like this gun it has a ventilated rib okay okay so it actually yeah, yeah it does have a rib on it which yeah you, yeah that you don't see that all the time on those little break open. no Hammer. No, that's the only single shot. I'm, there probably is some more out there, different, right. different manufacturers, but that's the only one that, that I could find that had the ventilated rib because, you know, I, I wanted to get a single shot because I was, that's all I was shooting in that, in my CZ. I, I, even after I got it fixed, I just kept just putting one shell in it, you know, even after it was shooting. Yeah. Well, single shot, shotgun and a hacksaw. You got a quail gun, Mike. <laughs> you know, there's the disadvantage to that is, you know, is then, you know, if they're starting to get, you know, like sharp tail later in the season, they're going to be out farther. I, I, yep. I can't hunt with that gun. And so that's why I need to, uh, I need to find another gun to hunt with it or, or buy another one and don't cut the barrel off. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> Keep that modified choke in there. Yeah. What, what's interesting is when the, the, the first 870, when I first started bird hunting with, it was a, it was an old one. It was built in like the early seventies. And I, it, that was before they had the, you know, choke tubes. And so I had, I actually had three barrels for it. Oh, really? So, yeah. I had a, I had a, it had a cylinder, a modified and a full choke barrel. And so, you know, when I wanted to, you know, change you know, like now you change the choke tubes, you know, I would change the whole barrel. Yep. Now they, uh, now they figured out how to just, uh, just change the tubes. <laughs> yeah. Do you still have the wingmaster? My son has it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I gave it to my son. He, he, he used to bird hunt with me when he was younger. He doesn't hunt any now, but it's, it's kind of an heirloom. Yeah. And so I gave it to him. I don't, I don't hunt anymore. I, it's got really nice wood on it. And, and, you know, I, I was really afraid that I was going to, damage it or something so he's got it now yeah i know my dad's still got he's got a 12 gauge wingmaster and i never shot that one a whole lot but i it was it was always the shotgun that he had and still has it i'm sure yeah yeah they're 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 very good guns very good guns uh i think the thing that i didn't i started not liking about it too was you know they have ejectors you know instead of extractors right right and so, you know, when you shoot, then, you know, you're looking for your shell. Mm -hmm. And I'd always feel bad if I couldn't find my shell, you know, my hole. And so I, that's one of the reasons I like going to ones that just had extractors, because then you don't have to be looking for your, your empties. Yeah. All right, Mike. Well, we covered some ground and, and I really appreciated getting to know you a bit better. I know you've been 
listening to the show. We've been keeping in touch a little bit, but it was fun learning about how you got into bird hunting and hearing some stories about the dogs and quail. And you've been doing this for a long time. It doesn't sound like you're going to stop anytime soon. Well, I hope not. I mean, it just <laughs> depends on how long these old legs can keep going. And I think I've got a few more years left in me, I think. Anything left on your list? I mean, is there a bird that you, or a hunt that you feel like you haven't done yet? Or do you just, do you just like to, like to do what you love to do? Well, you know, I, I always felt like I wanted to go chucker hunting, you know, Okay. but I don't know. I don't know if I could do it now. My knees are getting a little wobbly and, you know, it kind of just depends on if I think I can get myself in good enough shape to, to go chucker hunting. I, that's one of the things I still would like to do is, yeah. is you know, go to the Great Basin out there and, and go chucker hunting, you know. I know in some conversations with Chuck, you know, like like a lot of things, you can kind of, you can, there's, to a certain extent, you can sort of chucker hunt. You don't have to be on the steepest of steep terrain. Certainly chuckers, chucker live there, but you can you can find them in other areas so i'm yeah knowing you and, and your background a bit more i'm i'm sure you could you could figure it out if you really wanted to do it <laughs> <laughs> well i think uh that that is a, a you know if i'm going to do it i think i'm going to have to do it here quickly yeah you know and so that's kind of what my goal is is, is if i can to be quite honest with you about that that cold spell here in kansas you know i i'd sit around and didn't do anything but but eat you know, for about 10 days. And I think I put on about 10 pounds. So <laughs> I think that I think if, uh, uh I'm going to have to get in much better shape. So that's, that's kind of my goal for this year is to get in hopefully good enough shape. And if I don't do it this next coming year, I, I, I just don't know if I'll ever be able to do it, you know? So that's my goal. Hopefully this year I'll get out there and, and go to the great basin and, and chase some of the birds there. Well, with this early spring, you Get out the get the weighted backpack and get out there and start rucking, following the dogs, and you got it. You got a long long off season to get get tuned up for it, Mike. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm gonna give it a try. And if you do it, you let me know, and we'll. I'd, I'd love to have you back on. We can talk about your trucker you hunt bet. or anything. You bet. You bet. All right, buddy. Well, I really do appreciate it. It was fun to connect for this episode. Thanks for taking the time to join us on this episode of the podcast. That does it for this episode, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.